Welcome to Women Who Sarcast. I'm Kathy Barron. My guest today is a multi-winning social justice journalist. She's interviewed everyone from eminent scientists and artists to hardened criminals and vicious internet trolls. She is the host of Seriously Social Podcast. In 2013, she and her family suffered the effects of online hate firsthand, and it was this experience that set her on a professional journey into the world of trolls. Her first book, Troll Hunting, was published in February 2019. Please welcome Ginger Gorman. Hi, Kathy. Thank you for having me. Thanks for being on the show and taking time out of your busy, hectic schedule to be here, <laughs> all the way from Australia. Yes, I know. Although I've got to say, since the pan- pandemic started, it feels like we're all a bit closer because we can just Zoom to connect. Exactly, exactly. So I'm curious to know, how did you come to be a social justice journalist? So I've been a journalist for more than 20 years, and I suppose the thing that interests me most is getting into those dark crevices of humanity. Mm -hmm. I'm always interested in how we treat each other and how society could be more fair. And so I actually made that up, social justice journalist, because I had to find a way of trying to explain what my work was. And it's funny, I made it up. I'd never seen it anywhere before. And when I use it, people seem to understand it. So I just started using it. People seemed to get it and I kept using it. And it does really describe the kind of stories I do mm-hmm. because I might do stories about domestic abuse and then the next day I might do a story about predator trolling and to the outsider they might not seem related. Right. But to me it's still the same stuff. It's about how we behave towards each other as humans and how we could behave better and be more fair. So tell me about your book, Troll Hunting. (laughs) I'm very intrigued uh, because cyberbullying has been around pretty much since the internet was born. And I think with, you know, the black net and the dark web, I guess they call it, and with the political atmosphere that the U.S. has had and you know, Russia hacking into our political campaign and systems and that sort of thing. I'm interested to know what prompted you to write the book. Yeah, so obviously I'm Australian, but there is actually a lot of U.S. content in there because predator trolling, as I call it, where people are using the internet to do real-life harm, is very global. I never meant to become a cyber hate expert. In fact, I'm not very techie. You know, I can't really use my cell phone very well. (laughs) Um, I'm not a person that is interested in tech per se, but I'm interested in humans. Mm -hmm. And that's really where it came from. What happened was for many, many years, I worked for our public broadcaster here, which is called the ABC. It's nothing to do with the US ABC. Mm -hmm. And While I was broadcasting at the ABC, I did a series of stories about LGBTIQ plus people and I was really doing stories about their human rights. These were not hard news current affairs stories. These were about how these people were being treated. Mm -hmm. And one of those stories was about two gay men that told me they had had this child via surrogacy in Russia. And, you know, I spent a lot of time with this family, these two men, Mark Newton and Peter Truong, and I spent a lot of time with their little boy. 
boy. And that story went to air on the radio and it was posted online and it stayed online. So I did the story in 2010. And then in 2013, those men were arrested actually in the United States uh, as members of an international pedophile gang. One of them was actually an American citizen and one of them was an Australian citizen. And it turned out that that little boy that they told me they had had via surrogacy in Russia, that little boy was actually purchased from his Russian mother. And he had had, oh, look, the grief I have for that child is just kind of unending. I, you know, I think about him all the time still because he was abused by those two men from the time he was two weeks old and the most horrendous sexual crimes. And he was shared with pedophiles around the globe. So those, once those men were taken into custody and charged and then later convicted, like, I just became the target of this horrendous campaign of hate. And it was actually started by a conservative American journalist and blogger called Robert Stacey McCain. Mm -hmm. And he was blogging to his thousands of followers and also tweeting that I should be shamed and I should pay for what I had done. So in his view, I was somehow capable, culpable for the crimes against this child. Mm -hmm. And I mean, the first thing I would say is that those men had no criminal record. They were unknown to police. Actually, New Zealand police accidentally came upon that case uh, while they were investigating a completely separate child offender. And you, when you were with them and talking with them, had no indication whatsoever? No. And I mean, the thing was that child, uh, it was in far north Queensland, which is at in the top of Australia and that child went to school. None of his teachers knew, none Mm. of the neighbours knew, you know, there was no indication that those men were perpetrating those crimes. I mean, this is the great lie about child offenders. I actually work in this area now for a non-profit that tries to stop child exploitation. We think that we know someone's a criminal by looking at them, you know, but that's just not true. Yeah, There's a huge amount of... uh, child offenders you know and actually it's gone up in COVID the use of child exploitation material and the production of that material because everyone's at home on their computers so these were just lovely seeming guys they had a beautiful home they had toys for the child all of that stuff Mm -hmm. so once those men became international news um and you know these guys conservatives in the United States really found the story that I had done I just yeah, was relentlessly targeted and they were really inciting that hatred against me, what I now call predator trolling. Mm -hmm. And so there are two moments in that scenario that I remember very clearly. One was I was lying in bed with my then husband and we got a death threat that sort of said your life is over, which is actually very common now, but this was back in 2013. Mm-hmm. And I realised yeah. that my tweets were geolocated, so you could actually pinpoint our house on Google Maps. Oh, wow. And then at the same time, I I think my husband actually found it. It was a photo of our family taken from Facebook. We had taken it for the purposes of like a holiday greeting card. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I was very pregnant with my second child. My two-year-old daughter was on my husband's shoulders and it was on a essentially Nazi hate website. Mm-hmm. And there was all this kind of commentary, very anti-Semitic commentary underneath. And 
I come from a family that fled the Holocaust. A lot of my family mm. members died in the Holocaust. And so those two things together were very terrifying. Right. And I just remember like lying in bed and I could hear my two little girls like asleep and breathing in the next room. Like the little one was tiny and just thinking, did I just put my kids' lives in danger because of my job as a journalist. So that's where it started is like that pure terror. Right. And then I guess like a couple of years later, maybe 18 months later, the fear sort of died down mm. and the journalist came back. And I started wondering like, why would you send someone that you don't know a death threat? Like who are these guys? And at the same time, a lot of my particularly female journalistic colleagues in the States, in England, in Australia, they were getting extreme cyber hate against them. So similar stuff, death threats, rape threats, beheaded women in their inboxes, this kind of stuff. And I realised this is like emerging around the world as a thing. So that's where the sort of curiosity took over and I wanted to investigate. But my husband at the time, person of colour, a person with anxiety, he was like, just leave it alone. Like, just Mm -hmm. do not go there again. This has done so much damage to our family. I need you to leave it alone. But I actually just couldn't. So did the authorities, law enforcement, did they help you in any way (laughs) when those... No, I'm only laughing because it's a problem around the world where almost universally law enforcement does not take this seriously, not just in Australia, in the States, in Brazil, Mm -hmm. in pretty much every country in the world. This is just laughed off. You may go down to the police station and get somebody that understands how serious it can be, but you probably won't. No, they did what they always do, which is say, stay off the internet, love, which is ludicrous, <laughs> right? Because like, who can stay off the internet? Right. And also right. it's just total victim blaming. And the thing is, Kathy, so the investigation I ended up doing links this kind of predator trolling to murder, to incitement, to suicide, to several terrorist acts, to severe domestic abuse, Uh, stalking assault like this stuff at the extreme end is linked to such serious crimes like the charlottesville riots were incited in this kind of way by Mm -hmm. predator trolls so you know and obviously a lot of people were very critically injured in those riots and one woman was killed heather hoyer so we can't brush it off but it is often brushed off by law enforcement unfortunately So you interviewed the very people that trolled you. Is that correct? I tried to interview Robert Stacey McCain Mm -hmm. and he said he would do an interview with me and he ended up uh, not ever really coming through with that. Mm -hmm. I had an email correspondence with him. What I did in the end was I went out to find really serious predator trolls, uh, white supremacists essentially most of them were, And what I found was just absolutely beyond my imagination. Mm. I did not understand how dangerous those guys were. Like they're working in huge international syndicates and they are really, like I said, oftentimes doing such damaging things. One of the trolls in my book who is a terrorist troll, uh, Joshua Ryan Goldberg, is in jail now in Florida because he 
incited a terrorist attack in Garland, Texas in 2015. And he had two other terrorist attacks planned, one in Melbourne in Australia and another one in Kansas. So, like, he trolled a lot of Australians, which is how I kind of came across that story. But it's unbelievable. It I, The story was so complicated. Like, he had about 100 different online personas, you know. I, I, it was so hard to wrap my head around. It read like a spy novel, you know. Right. So do you feel by interviewing these trolls, I mean, it's kind of a catch-22 a little bit. It's like you don't want to give them the notoriety and the publicity, but yet you still want to learn about who they are, what they do. Um, How do you kind of balance that? You want to get the information, but at the same time, you don't want them to feel like they're becoming celebrities. Yeah, it's such a great question, Kathy, because I did have a moment where particularly Mark, who's a really psychopathic troll in my book, and he has gotten people killed, he admitted to me that he was a narcissist and he was really talking to me for attention. So there was this really complex thought process that I went through because he did want the notoriety. But then my assessment in the end was that nobody was reporting on this or not the level of damage it was doing and not in a cohesive way. And the damage that was being done to society by these guys was so extreme that somebody needed to do something. This Mm -hmm. needed to be uncovered. And so I was willing to pay the price or giving him that kick I guess giving him that notoriety because I think it served a greater good and I hope that was the right judgment I mean these are terrifying judgments to make you know I'm alone in my sweatpants in Australia you know (laughs) working through the night interviewing these guys who are so dangerous and so threatening I mean they were threatening me a lot of the time Mm -hmm. you know one of the guys in my book is Weave who is one of the world's most notorious trolls and he was involved in the Charlottesville riots and many other instances which have threatened and harmed people. And he's a neo-Nazi. And I was genuinely scared for my life when I was interviewing him. But I hope the price was worth it. I think it was because we're now seeing the com- dialogue change about this. Mm-hmm. Like in Australia, for example, we're about to bring in a new adult abuse scheme. So it's new legislation to address some of this stuff mm-hmm. and the way that m- the media reports on this is changing and I hope that my work has been part of that you know because otherwise you know it was a big price to pay I guess yeah well and I think as far as journalism or documentaries I think that it takes a special person like yourself to be like okay well this needs to be to be out this needs to be brought to the public so people can read and understand because otherwise how else would we I mean just the fact that you even got into their network I mean that's that's a whole other podcast episode as far as I'm concerned because I'm just intrigued by how first you found (laughs) them and two how they agreed to even talk to you in the first place so well I'm just going to say one thing about that because it is a really interesting psychological thing. So, like, I'm I'm Jewish, like I said. I'm white. I'm a left-wing feminist. I, um, I was married to a person of colour, which they hate, 
you know they hate all those things so I would joke like if this was a dating app I would be their hate match you know (laughs) um and so I'm everything they hate but what I realized was which is really interesting apart from the narcissism thing because some of them did do it for attention Mm -hmm. the strange thing is these guys and they're mostly young white men they feel unheard and so these are your kind of classic, what I would call Trump supporters, like mm-hmm. disenchanted. I mean, one of them said to me, he called himself white trash, you know, super bright guys often um, and really angry and very cast aside by society and unheard. And it took me a long time to wrap my head around that because I was like, why the hell would these guys talk to me? Why are they so keen? Mm -hmm. And it's because they don't feel like they have a voice and that's why they're doing what they're doing. You know, a lot of them had incredibly damaged childhoods, like completely neglected. So no parents around at all and really just brought up by the internet. So from tiny, they're like. They're already being exposed to the stuff on the internet, which 99% of the time isn't even true. So they probably latched on to something that they could relate to. Absolutely. So like Reddit, 4chan, N-chan, all these cesspits of the internet, they're sitting there imbibing misogyny, imbibing racism, imbibing all these kinds of bigotry and, you know, they're 10, they're 9, 10, 11, mm-hmm. tiny kids, and then they come out as predator trolls, like angry at the world and feeling like they want to get the world back. I don't think we can be amazed about that. Like I actually had a deep kind of empathy not for what they were doing but for who they were and what they had suffered in their lives by the end of it one of my friends who's a journalist said you've got Stockholm syndrome by the end of it (laughs) because she was like you know you've been talking to these guys for years but I don't think it was that it was just that I wanted to understand them so I gave them a lot of space and room and I really listened to them and in the end they trusted me and I think that's why I'm not dead now because actually they trusted me and I was fair and accurate with their stories. Right. Um, I put a lot of the tenets of journalism aside, actually. Like I basically, I didn't want to be killed. So I made sure that every single quote I used from them, they had seen it. They knew what was going to be in there Mm -hmm. because it was really hard to tell what was on the record and what was off because they were messaging me day and night. Once they started talking to me, my phone was like ping, 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 you know, like I couldn't shut them up basically. Yeah. yeah. So what was one thing that once you got into their network, what was one thing that really surprised you about that community? Oh, there's so many things. Uh, I found that revelation about the parenting, that it's really a parenting story, really profound to me as the parent of young kids. Mm -hmm. But I think a lot of times they had a lot of love and respect for each other. Like there was a troll called Jamie Cochrane. She was a transgender woman and she died during the writing of the book. I was meant to speak to her. She Mm -hmm. was president of one of the big syndicates. And you know, I watched the video of her funeral where they they came, the predator trolls came from all over the country in real life 
to speak and to remember her and the love and respect they gave her was incredible. So I was shocked by that. There's a whole trolling history and a whole trolling law, L-O-R-E, that they are proud of. Mm-hmm. And, and that's part of also why they wanted to talk to me. They wanted it written down. Um, so, yeah, I I didn't dream of that. I didn't dream that they had some semblance of humanity and that also, you know, they had a love for each other and a pride in what they did or that there were so many of them working in syndicates. That was nuts to me that they were actually so organised. Yeah. And I think that for Americans with the Capitol uh, insurgents yeah. where they... Yes. stormed the Capitol. I mean, and that, I mean, we were all just in shock with that. I mean, we knew that the, the last four years of the Trump supporters was very volatile and, um, we could feel it, but I guess none of us really expected that to happen. And you know what? I have to say I did like I, the Christchurch massacre where more than 50 people were killed in New Zealand by a terrorist that happened right after my book came out. That happened six weeks after my book came out and I actually got into bed and, like, pulled the quilt over my head and was like, oh, God, because I was almost writing the book to try to stop that sort of thing happening, you know. But Mm -hmm. I knew by this time that there were terrorists who were also trolls and, yeah, I felt in a way, it was people have said it was the perfect timing in a kind of way because it explained that incident. But I, I wish I had been able to stop it, you know. And the same with the capital. But maybe now we understand the damage that can be done. It's not just people being mean online. This right. can have really serious consequences if people organize in this way, you know. Yeah. So what are a couple of myths about cyber trolls or internet trolls, I guess you call them, (laughs) um, that people, like, I personally think that they're uneducated, um, that they come from a a family that's not very good upbringing. No, I mean, pretty much everything I thought about them was wrong, except for that they're young white guys. I mean, okay, there are trolls of all stripes. You know, there are left-wing trolls, there are women trolls, there are trolls with people of colour. But the big cohorts I was looking at were young white supremacists. Look, this idea that they are alone in their mum's basement and that they're dumb and uneducated and the stuff they're doing is accidental or not thought through, like none of the above, right? Mm -hmm. They are not alone. They are in new huge cohorts usually or at least loose gangs like even the guys that I talked to who were in loose gangs, there were still eight, 10, 12 of them working together. They are often very systematic about what they're doing and why they're doing it. Mm-hmm. So um, the cohort that one of them, this is very offensive. So they've named their syndicate, the Gay Niggers Association of America, and that is the reason they named it that is to prank the media and mainly what they do is prank wikipedia or the media on a huge scale and those raids that they do are very well planned to attack the left-wing media to often trick the left-wing media and they do it really well it's a political thing that they're doing and it's not accidental like i was shocked at how sophisticated the thinking is a lot of the time you know and 
I mean, some of these guys, like I would get into massive discourses with them and they'd read all the feminist texts, for example. Hmm. Like Weave is insane, but he is incredibly bright and incredibly well-read. Yeah. And none of what he's doing is accidental. So that is quite terrifying if you think about them working in big syndicates. Yeah. So do you think that this is just going to escalate over the years? Do you have like a solution as to how we can not have trolls on the internet or at least I mean it's hard with the cyber laws I mean it doesn't seem like there's that many cyber laws out there I don't know how Australia is yeah so there's so many different prongs to this what I say usually is like mechanisms that exist to keep us safe offline have to exist online and at the moment they don't Mainly where I lay the blame is at the feet of the huge tech giants, Mm -hmm. like Facebook, for example. Mm -hmm. Like I went to see Facebook, the head of Facebook Asia Pacific, not that long before the Christchurch massacre happened. And I said, Facebook Live is not safe. People are getting raped and murdered on it. It's a dangerous product. You need to fix it. And they said it is safe. And then, you know, Christchurch happened and it was broadcast live, that massacre, and it was online for 29 minutes, which was Mm. long enough for thousands of copies to be made. So the big question I have is how these tech giants who make billions of dollars from our data have no duty of care to the public. Like really, if you created a shopping mall, for example, where people were routinely raped and murdered, you would be liable for that. Yeah. Or if you created a car that had no seatbelts and people were getting killed on the road, right. you know, you would have to make that product safe before releasing it to the public. So I cannot understand why governments around the world, including the United States, are not legislating harder against these companies. Like in Germany, they have a law which they, it's got one of those really long German names, but it's called the NetSD law Mm -hmm. and they basically fine um social media companies 50 million euros per cyber hate post if it's not taken down within 24 hours now human rights watch thinks that's an infringement on free speech but i guess the thing that's interesting about that legislation is it makes the social media companies and the platforms take action very fast so it can be done yeah that's maybe too blunt a tool but i just don't think that we can have companies like when tobacco companies were doing people grave harm, you know, they were right with their advertising on TV and in magazines. I mean, that was stopped. That's right. But I think so, the problem with the tech companies is that they're in the politicians' pockets and the lobbyists, and that's right. Basically, tech but, companies run our 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 country. Basically, that's right. <laughs> but Teddy Roosevelt, like in the eighteen hundreds, when the oil companies and the tobacco companies and the railways were too big and powerful. He broke them up. Mm -hmm. He legislated against them. So it can be done. I just think there is a reticence because, as you say, (laughs) they're so powerful. Yeah. But they are not, you know, people ask me, like, why would they, why would they do this if it's harming people so much? And, you know, their motive is profit. They do Mm -hmm. not take actions that interrupt their profit motive, not voluntarily. So, (laughs) right. And Mark Zuckerberg has has testified in front of Congress multiple times. That's right. You know that has gone nowhere. 
That's right. I mean, those companies have been bleating about fixing cyber hate and extremism on their platform since about 2006. And occasionally they do little fixes that tinker around the edges, but they're yeah. not really dealing with the heart of this because they don't want to. Yeah. It does not suit them. And so therefore, you, you know, the government of the day, whether it's in Australia, the United Kingdom, United States, wherever it is, has to step in. I mean, and like at its extreme, you know, Facebook has been implicated by the United Nations in a genocide in Myanmar. So like, mm. we are not mucking around here. Yeah, uh, I do think as well that it's that's one thing and that's probably the biggest fix. But law enforcement does need to do better. They need to be resourced better, trained better, have the skills to investigate these crimes and also the resources to do that. Right. And I do think there's a troll in all of us as well. So I think most of us are more aggressive online than the we are offline. Yeah. And no, that is true. The, yeah. yeah. I mean, have you done that? I've definitely done that where I'd be more aggressive online than I would have offline. Yeah. And I've definitely checked myself with that because I'm because when you read something, you're like instantaneously have this like emotional reaction. Yeah. And so then you just, you know, basically vomit all over social media about how you feel about a certain thing. And a lot of times I would like check myself and I'll be like, okay, let's take a deep breath. You know, yeah, but do you really want to go there? It's like we need online social skills, right? Yeah, because exactly. there's a thing that's really interesting, which you can Google. It's on Wikipedia called the online disinhibition effect. And it's basically an academic way of saying, it's gamified when we interact online. Like mm. now I can see you, I see your facial cues, you're a real person to me and we're interacting. But online on Facebook or Twitter, I can't see you. It seems to have no consequence. Right. And so I do behave more aggressively or, or I have a tendency to. So I feel like we've all got to watch out for that mm -hmm. and be a really good bystander. Like I've been writing lately about bystander behavior mm -hmm. and how you can intervene in trolling not aggressively, politely, but just show the victim support either behind the scenes or publicly. And I'm all about talking back to trolls if you feel comfortable, not right. aggressively, right. but just often what I am doing is enforcing social norms. Like if you were aggressive to me or someone I knew online, I would just say to you online, you know, would you say that to somebody in the supermarket? And if you wouldn't, don't do it online because it's not kind. Yeah. I mean, that's really what I want. I want to reclaim the internet for the good of humanity. But sometimes it feels like you're very small <laughs> when you're trying to do that, you know, against yeah. armies of white supremacist trolls. Right, exactly. That will lash out at you physically and in, on the internet, yeah. They leave me alone, really, because I'm on the front foot. I think. Good. Yeah. So I'm going to I'm going to pivot a little bit cuz I yeah, want to talk about it. your uh podcast called Seriously Social. Uh tell yes. me tell me about it. So in the pandemic we were interested in the humans and what was happening to the humans. And so the Academy of the Social Sciences which is an an academic body here in Australia contacted me and asked me would I be interested in essentially delving into all this cutting edge research 
And I am a social person, as I've said. So I was immediately like, yes, Mm -hmm. let's explain society. Let's look at humans and all the strange and wonderful things we do. So that's how it started. And it's had quite an interesting evolution. Uh, We started out as a straight interview podcast and now it's much more a narrative style. So it's got lots of texture, case studies, lots of sound, and we're still featuring lots of really cutting-edge research Mm -hmm. so we just did one really interesting one about the history of toxic masculinity Mm. fascinating like it started basically hundreds of years ago when white people first came to Australia and the masculine norms they introduced and how that has been spread through society like DNA almost you know absolutely rooting and then like in that same podcast we talked to uh, a man who was a builder he was trying to change the culture of building and the kind of misogyny that exists in that industry. Mm-hmm. And another bloke that another guy that works with really young kids who are damaged, a bit like the kind of guys that, you know, the trolling guys I talked about, he helps them recreate their masculinity in a much more healthy way. Right. So we go right deep in there and look, I can't believe someone pays me to do it. Like <laughs> I love it so much. You know, we did a whole episode around Christmas, around food in the pandemic and how food brought people together. And Mm -hmm. the start of the podcast was like me and my mom making mango mousse together. Like, really, I was like, wow, I can't believe I'm making a podcast. (laughs) Look, it's been an amazing journey and so much fun. Do you have like a favorite episode that you've done? I did. I loved both those ones I talked about. The food one was just wonderful because it was about connecting people through food. So even though maybe in the pandemic we couldn't see the people we loved, we could eat the same food and we could still share family recipes. Mm -hmm. So it was about the meaning of food in crisis, really. Yeah. Um, And we talked about the Spanish flu epidemic that happened here in Australia and in Europe around uh, 1918, mm-hmm. and how similar that was or dissimilar to the current pandemic. There was There's some stuff in there that makes me enraged, like the episode we did about how housework was split in the pandemic between the genders, mm-hmm. and uh, it made me, like, steam come out my ears, you know. That's interesting. <laughs> So, yeah, basically Australian men, when they were in lockdown, were in a heterosexual couple. So it's Mm -hmm. very different in same-sex couples, but same-sex couples share the workload much more evenly. But uh, these couples, the men were doing a tiny bit more housework and they were deeply unhappy about that, (laughs) deeply dissatisfied. And it literally made me go on fire almost. (laughs) So, yeah, we've just got the most incredible academics, professors all around the country who are researching amazing stuff. And you know what academics are like? Like often they're not actually trumpeting the amazing research that they're doing. And so Mm. it's a beautiful chance to really get them to talk about what's happening. So the one we just did is about forecasting, not weather forecasting. It's stuff like forecasting COVID case numbers Mm -hmm. and forecasting, for example, we had a toilet paper surge here. It was completely sold out in the pandemic. Did you have that? Yeah, we totally did. Yes. Yeah. So (laughs) one of the things I did was interview the head of this company that makes toilet paper 
it's actually a social enterprise. But what did they do? How did they cope <laughs> with that? How did they forecast how much toilet paper to make given that it was completely sold out? So mm-hmm. that's just fascinating as well, stuff that perhaps as humans we don't think about that much but is actually crucial to everyday life, like how does the supermarket know how much pasta to buy? How do we know how many ambulances we need at a certain place? What's the likelihood of needing five mica ambulances in this location at that time? Right. So that stuff I just had never thought about in my life. Like, yeah. It's fascinating. It is fascinating. I, mean, I was in the grocery industry for 16 years, so I was oh, wow. definitely know how to order things and you know, I was in the grocery uh, department actually at Whole Foods in Trader Joe's for a little bit. Um, but yeah, I mean, it is fascinating. And I was, when you were talking about the toilet paper, it's like, yeah, I mean, the pandemic just like totally blew any sales force forecasting out of the water, yes. like unprecedented times, um, as people like to say. So I think it definitely threw a lot of the companies for a loop because not only were they running out of product, but their factories probably weren't even open because yes. people were in lockdown or some, some factories were closed. So I think there's that whole dynamic. So the mathematical modeling that Professor Rob Hinman does is, is used around the world now. I think it's even used at places like Amazon. But I found it fascinating him talking about how they build into the mathematical modeling what they call black swan events, so really rare events like a pandemic or mm-hmm an earthquake or some other shock that makes all the normal patterns go out of whack, Mm -hmm. you know. So, yeah, I think the supermarkets have a lot of work to do because we've had one pandemic, but the likelihood is we'll have another one, right? So, And I think this was like the first pandemic Americans have had probably in any of their lifetimes. That's right. And the... The Spanish flu that we had here, did that hit the United States as well? I believe it did, yeah. Yeah, I mean, that is more, you know, that's nearly 100 years ago now, or it is. It was, it's more than, it's exactly almost 100 years. Mm -hmm. So 1919, you know, that's not something most people would remember. It's very historical. But, you know, this, this pandemic, this virus is rapidly mutating as well. So, it may be the kind of endless pandemic. Right. <laughs> like we have to get on top of this it's stuff. It's not like a flu season. Yeah. No, yeah. not at all. So one last question. Um, are there any topics that you wouldn't talk about or that you wouldn't research or you wouldn't touch with a 10-foot pole? What a great question. I would like to say no because I'm an extreme risk taker, but I would have to take that question or notice and come back to you I don't think so some of the work I've done has been so confronting like one of the biggest stories I've ever reported and the hardest was about men who were sexually abused by their mother their mothers when they were little boys Mm. and that was incredibly hard to report it was incredibly hard to get the trust of those men the damage that had been done to their lives was extreme and then Basically, they weren't believed. They aren't believed because it's not in popular discourse. Right. So I do go into those dark places. I would say, though, Kathy, like it costs a lot. Like the book 
gave me extreme PTSD because it was so violent. People were getting killed in real time. And, you know, I became quite alcoholic by the end of writing that manuscript. And now I have to be really careful. Like if I report those stories, I have to go back to my therapist and make sure I've, I'm dealing with that stuff. Right. I mean, you definitely have to take care of yourself in the process of doing it. I think, I think it's very brave and courageous for you to even dive deep into those dark alleys that you need to go to, to get the story. And, uh, you know, I'm very inspired by that. Uh, Oh, thank you. I mean, honestly, a lot of times I just think there isn't really a choice because, the media has such a powerful platform to give people a voice that mm-hmm. you have to. But yeah, my mom does that ask me. She says, Why do you have to be so fucking miserable? Like and I think <laughs> she thinks, you know, I should be writing Jane Austen or I should be <laughs> writing about yeah. flowers. I, I guess as well, don't forget, you know, her family were holy they, they yeah. survived the Holocaust. So there is a question there about why do you, why do you need to go into those dark places? But actually, as you can see, you're talking to me, I am actually quite a joyful person. I'm oh, not absolutely. a miserable. Yeah, no, no. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not miserable, but people people are often shocked when they meet me. Though they're like, "Oh, you smile and wear fifties dresses and wear lipstick, and you're actually quite <laughs> happy," you know. But I guess I just feel like those stories have to be told. Yeah. So probably not. Yeah, I mean, I'm not, there's things I'm not interested in reporting on. Like I'm not interested in the beauty industry particularly or some of those things I would avoid for those reasons. But I almost am like a bull in a china shop. Like (laughs) if it feels too hard, I've got to push harder and get there. You know what I mean? Yeah. Because there's so many people without a voice, you know? Absolutely. And we have to check our privilege, like give, give people that platform to tell that story, you know, tell whatever story it is. Yeah. Well, thank you, Ginger. I'm definitely going to have you back because there's so (laughs) many more questions that I want to ask and talk to you about. You can find Ginger Gorman on Twitter at Ginger Gorman and on her website at gingergorman.com. You can also listen to episodes of her podcast, Seriously Social, wherever you listen to podcasts. Thank you for listening to Women Who Sarcast, an independent podcast. We welcome and encourage your snarky comments. Contact us at womenwhosarcast at yahoo.com and follow us on Twitter and Instagram at womenwhosarcast. Support us on Patreon and become part of our sarcastic community. Visit www.patreon.com backslash womenwhosarcast. Show music provided by Mike Imbasciani.